Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. I am Nick Whitney, and this 11th episode opens the frankly depressing chapter of Europe's Wars of Religion. It might well take us its text, the words of Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. In the years before his death, in 1558, the Emperor Charles V witnessed the failure of his universal monarchy ambition. His final acts were to preside over the demerger of the Habsburg Empire into its Austrian and Spanish components, whilst the Treaty of Augsburg amounted to acceptance that the Protestant genie was irrevocably out of the bottle. The Battle of Lepanto in 1571 then dealt a decisive check to the expansion of Ottoman power. A rare moment of equilibrium in European affairs seemed in prospect. But the story of the next hundred years is of the storm that all too soon overtook this moment of potential calm in the shape of increasingly virulent wars of religion. These would culminate in the horrors of the Thirty Years' War, fought mainly on the Empire's territory, in the following century. But Europeans' enthusiasm for faith-based mutual slaughter was first aroused and then copiously indulged in France and the Netherlands. Who destabilised the spirit of religious compromise embodied in the Augsburg Treaty? Unsurprisingly not the Holy Roman Emperor. Augsburg was at once an admission that the Emperor lacked the means to coerce the Protestant princes of North Germany, and a demonstration that the devolved power structures of the Empire could flex to accommodate internal differences even on such a charged and fundamental issue as religion. It helped that Ferdinand, Charles V's brother who succeeded him as emperor, his son Maximilian II and his son Rudolf II were all ready to deal pragmatically with issues of faith. Rudolf indeed was a highly unconventional figure, for this is the emperor who transferred his court from Vienna to Prague in 1583 and expressed his insatiable curiosity through patronage of artists, scientists... The astronomers Brahe and Kepler were welcomed to his court, and astrologers and alchemists. He was evidently content to be represented as a set of vegetables by the painter Archimboldi, and dabbled in the occult. He was famed for his collection of wonders, all manner of natural and man-made curios, from minerals to mechanical devices, and his menagerie. Court accounts record payments of reparation to the victims, or to their surviving relatives, of the lion and tiger that roamed his castle. Regrettably, he also felt bound to make war on the Turks, who were still in occupation of much of Hungary, and did so with such incompetence that he was eventually elbowed aside by his brother Matthias. But the point here is that he took no interest in religious conflict. Monarchical, statist France lacked the empire's flexibility on such issues. As the Calvinist Huguenots grew in numbers and confidence, especially in the southwest, leading French Catholic families demanded they be suppressed. King Henry II died from a jousting wound in 1559, 
and the three sons who succeeded him on the throne of France proved unequal to the challenge of stabilising the situation. So the last four decades of the 16th century were characterised by assassinations, mob violence and -and out-and-out civil war, costing some three million lives across France. Much as the Red Wedding stood out amongst the serial atrocities of the Game of Thrones, so an apogee of awfulness was reached by the St Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. In this case, the wedding itself, the Protestant Prince Henry of Navarre marrying the King's sister Margaret, passed off peacefully enough, but the crowd of eminent Protestant guests still present in Paris a few days later proved too tempting a target. The slaughter of Huguenots then spread rapidly across France, with predictable repercussions and retaliations, repeating themselves until the dynamic changed in 1589 with the extinction of the Valois dynasty. When the last of those three royal brothers died, at an assassin's hands, without male heir. The succession then passed to the House of Bourbon, a cadet branch of the old Capetian dynasty, in the person, ironically enough, of Prince Henry of Navarre, now Henry IV of France. Actually, the French Catholics found an alternative royal claimant and held out in Paris until Henry reached his pragmatic conclusion that Paris is well worth a mass and converted to Rome. In 1598, Henry had finally secured his kingdom, and was able to publish the Edict of Nantes, which restored full liberties to the Huguenots. His reign was cut short, another assassination, in 1610, but is viewed by many as the best in France's royal history. Neighbours such as the Dutch, English and Germans all interfered in France's religious conflicts, but none so vigorously as Philip II of Spain. Succeeding his father, the Emperor Charles V, to the Spanish throne in 1556, he was also King of Naples and Sicily, Duke of Milan, and Lord of the Spanish Netherlands, embracing also today's Belgium and Luxembourg, plus, of course, the New World Empires in Central and South America, to which the eponymous Philippines was soon added. Manila was founded in 1571. So, Philip was the leading power in Europe even before a succession crisis in Portugal in 1581 enabled him to add that throne and Portugal's overseas trade and territories to his collection. Alas, Philip's virulent faith drove him to unceasing efforts to restore the authority of Rome over heretics everywhere. He, more than anyone, ensured that the Augsburg Compromise fell apart, fostered decades of bloody religious strife across Europe, and set the Spanish Habsburgs on a course so self-destructive that within a couple of generations their power had been irrevocably broken. Devout, precise and introverted, he spent much of his 42-year reign sequestered in the palace monastery of El Escorial outside his new capital of Madrid, encouraging the Spanish Inquisition and issuing a stream of written instructions to various equally uncompromising lieutenants across the globe. No lieutenant was more uncompromising than the Duke of Alba, dispatched to deal with the Dutch Protestants, who had reacted to the introduction of the Inquisition into the Low Countries 
with anti-clerical riots and sprees of iconoclasm. Alba assembled his forces, including the fabled Spanish Tercio infantry, in northern Italy, and took them up the Spanish road, that great swathe of Habsburg territory that extended up from the Alps to the North Sea. On arrival in Brussels, Alba made clear his intentions by condemning two of the most prominent local nobles, the Counts of Egmont and Horn, for treason. As members of the Order of the Golden Fleece, they should properly have been tried only by their peers, but too bad, and beheading them. Egmont is commemorated in a Goethe play, for which Beethoven wrote his eponymous overture. The two counts remain Belgian national heroes. Alba had made his mark, and in so doing, touched off an 80-year Dutch struggle for independence, by the end of which Spain had been bled white. The Dutch War of Independence is traditionally taken to run from 1568 to 1648. In practice, the United Provinces, today's Netherlands, secured their independence in 1609, when a 12-year truce took hold, but then the Low Countries became re-embroiled in the wider turmoil of the Thirty Years' War. In the next few years after the execution of Egmont and Horn, some 5,000 more executions followed, as well as a good deal of bloodletting associated with Alba's tax-raising to pay the costs of his occupation. The views of the local population may be judged from the depictions of Spanish soldiers going about their work in the various versions of the Massacre of the Innocents, produced by the artists Bruegel, father and son. So, when William the Silent of the House of Orange-Nassau, a peer of Egmont at Horn who had dodged arrest, called for revolt, the two northern provinces of Holland and Zealand rallied to him. William was a, a wealthy Brabant nobleman, who also happened to have inherited the Principality of Orange in Provence, an independent enclave in the French kingdom, and the Duchy of Nassau on the Rhine. So, as Norman Davis puts it, the House of Orange Nassau was not Dutch in origin, but a typical dynastic multinational amalgam founded by accident and perpetuated by good fortune. Alba failed to crush the revolt and was relieved of his command. But persistent problems over paying the Spanish troops, despite all the bullion coming in from the New World, Philip's Spain was repeatedly insolvent, led to a series of Spanish furies in which unpaid soldiers looted Dutch cities, and so fueled the rebellion. In 1579, seven of the 17 provinces of the Spanish Netherlands, covering roughly the whole of today's Netherlands, declared for William as the United Provinces, and fought on for 30 years until achieving implicit recognition of their independence in 1609. Across the North Sea, the Tudor dynasty had begun to rebuild English power with a strategy of careful triangulation between France and the Empire. Henry VIII, he of the Six Wives and the nationalisation of the English Church, along with its extensive assets, periodically clashed with the French and their proxies, the Scots, but not on a scale to interfere with the strong economic growth based on wool and textile production, and on trade. 
His father, Henry VII's Magnus Intercursus trade deal of 1496, casts an interesting light on how sophisticated trading relations were now becoming. The deal was signed with the Duke of Burgundy, the son of the Emperor Maximilian, but also associated the Netherlands and the Hanseatic League, as well as Venice and Florence. Of course, Luther's revolution had profound repercussions in England, and the first two of Henry VIII's children to succeed him to the throne, Edward and Mary, stood the country into peril with their zealous embrace of, respectively, the Protestant and Catholic causes. There were martyrs aplenty and civil unrest, but fortunately both these fervent monarchs died relatively young, and Mary was succeeded on the English throne by her half-sister, the clever, pragmatic, and long-lived Elizabeth I. She ruled from 1558 to 1603. On the other side of the Channel, France was providing a dreadful warning of what would happen if religious passions got out of control. And the Protestant Elizabeth asked only outward conformity from her Catholic subjects. I would not open windows into men's souls. Loyalty was harder to ensure. Though open revolt was largely avoided, constant conspiracies and assassination plots, often fermented in Europe's Catholic courts, prompted the formation of a highly effective English secret service. One particular focus of disaffection was Mary, Queen of Scots. Henry VIII's sister Margaret had been married to the Scots King James IV, the man who met his death at Flodden. Mary was their granddaughter. She was reared at the French court, married the Dauphin, and inherited the Scottish throne in the same year that Elizabeth succeeded in England. A Catholic Scots queen with a colourable claim to the English throne would have been more of a problem if France was not busy tearing itself apart, and if most Scots had not been severe Calvinists. Mary's unpopularity was enhanced by a scandalous marital career. One inconvenient husband was blown up. Soon she was in England, asking her cousin for a political asylum. Conspiracies flowed around her for a couple of decades, before Elizabeth finally had her executed. So stability in England was at constant risk of trouble from the continent, and the more so as Philip of Spain intensified his efforts to crush the Dutch. These were co-religionists and major trading partners of the English, after all, and who knew where Philip's crusading zeal might take him next if he succeeded in the Spanish Netherlands? Tensions between Spain and England had been rising for years, as English privateers preyed ever more impudently on Spanish treasure ships from the Americas, and Sir Francis Drake even took his depredations into the Pacific during his circumnavigation of the globe in 1578-80. to In the early 1580s, the Spanish pressed the Dutch hard. William the Silence was assassinated, and the Duke of Parma, the latest Spanish commander, retook Antwerp, causing half the population to flee north. So, in 1585, Elizabeth sent an intervention force to the Netherlands. Its main effect was to convince Philip that England must now be dealt with. In 1588, he dispatched his famous armada from Spain to the Netherlands, aiming to rendezvous with Parma's army and convey it to English shores. The Armada's destruction, mainly by the weather, supercharged Queen Elizabeth's authority and enduring legend. 
Skilled propagandists ensured that her dramatic speech to her troops assembled to repel the invaders received the widest circulation. I know I have the body of a weak, feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and a king of England too, and think foul scorn that Palmer or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm. The English language was on the verge of Shakespeare. Philip had received a bloody nose, and though he won the return match the following year, defeating the curiously less celebrated English Armada Revenge Expedition, the coincident accession of Henry of Navarre to the French throne persuaded him to concentrate on his interventions in France. These ended with a new France-Spain peace in 1598, the year of Philip's death. Stalemated conflict continued in the Low Countries, roughly along today's Belgium-Netherlands divide, until 1609, when France and England attempted to mediate peace between Spanish and Dutch. The result was a 12-year truce, not a treaty. As a sign of the times, one sticking point was Dutch refusal of Spanish demands that the rapidly growing Dutch marine cease to navigate south of the equator. But the mediators and the wider international community recognised the Dutch Republic as a sovereign state. And the scene was set for a period of civic, commercial and artistic achievement unparalleled since Renaissance Florence, the Dutch Golden Age. Few images are as universally familiar as the girl with a pearl earring, painted by Johannes Vermeer in Delft in about 1665. Only 30 or so Vermeer pictures have survived, and more typically he depicts middle-class domestic interiors. Simply furnished, gently side-lit, and framing a solitary figure or a couple engaged in some peaceful pursuit. The girl's luminous and tranquil qualities suffuse all his work, and just as her simple attire is set off with the gorgeous pearl, so the well-mannered restraint of a Vermeer interior will be picked out with a sumptuous oriental rug, a rich satin dress, or an elegant silver ewer. Vermeer's aesthetic is the apogee of bourgeois good taste, and I love him. Things looked pretty much the same outside as well. The Amsterdam canals are lined with houses of massively wealthy merchants, but the lack of ostentation is conspicuous. The scale human, as is only right given that Erasmus was a Netherlander, the style satisfyingly symmetrical. Of course, it took a bit more than refined taste to turn Amsterdam, in the space of a, about a century, from minor Hanseatic port to the commercial capital of the world, hub of a vast international trading enterprise, and home to the world's biggest merchant marine. The Dutch Golden Age is above all testimony to an astonishing surge of energy, ambition and organisation, allied with technical skill. Dutch hydraulic engineers literally created much of the country, whilst the prodigious rate at which Baltic timber was converted into ships owed much to the invention of the wind-powered sawmill. In fairness, the Dutch Republic had plenty to build on, as we have seen, 
the Low Countries had been for centuries a key European commercial and cultural hub at the intersection of the trade routes up from Italy and the traffic, especially in commodities, timber, fish, grain, wool, along the coasts of Northern Europe. And although the early part of the Dutch War of Independence was vicious and destructive, it was not total. The Netherlands was too important an entrepot between Spain and the Baltic for both sides in the war not to continue their mutually profitable trade. In some ways, the war was a positive help. The sack of Antwerp in 1576 caused a mass migration of merchants and craftsmen to the new republic. The loss of what would remain the Spanish Netherlands was the United Provinces' gain, as attested by Dutch insistence, as a term of the later Treaty of Westphalia, that the River Scheldt remained blocked, thus precluding Antwerp's commercial revival. But what was new mattered more. To begin with, the Dutch were pioneering a new form of polity, a republic. The seven United Provinces may have fallen in behind William the Silent as war leader, but his office, that of Stadtholder, was never sovereign, and the provinces never allowed the appointment of any successor to be taken for granted. All elements of the Republic took their civic responsibilities seriously, just as the Calvinist Protestant ethic encouraged a strong sense of personal responsibility for both the individual and his household and the wider community. Witness the explosion of portraiture, epitomised by Rembrandt. His work is testimony to the determination of substantial citizens to memorialise their eminent roles, whether as successful burghers or as members of the proliferating guilds and militias. Compare the Night Watch, the supreme example of the new genre of group portraiture. Sober and responsible they may have been in their black suits and white churches, but they were not afraid of money. Indeed, there has seldom been a more meritocratic society, or one readier to accord a man's status according to his wealth. Small wonder that the new republic, open to energy and enterprise, and happy to tolerate Catholics who kept their religion private, as well as Jews, achieved a collective harnessing of individual talent, which rapidly eclipsed their Spanish foes, whose dogmatic king, in his lonely office in the Escorial, offered an object lesson in the perils of micromanagement. But whatever the historical and cultural factors contributing to Dutch success, it was their triumphant exploitation of the new commercial opportunities opening beyond Europe that put the gold into the Dutch golden age. For the last half century, both English and Dutch entrepreneurs had been intensifying their efforts to break the Portuguese arm lock on Southeast Asian trade. The decisive moment came in 1600, when the English amalgamated their efforts in the new East India Company, granted a monopoly by Royal Charter. The Dutch realised the need to match this competition and duly founded their own Dutch East India Company, known as VOC, its Dutch acronym, in 1602. Critically, this was established as a public company, and rapidly attracted levels of investment that enabled it both to dethrone the Portuguese and to see off the initial English competition. Beginning with a 21-year monopoly on the spice trade, 
and a focus on importing textiles from the Mughal Empire through Bengal, the VOC quickly diversified into commodities, from Formosan sugar to South African wine, and into production as well as trading and shipping. Its success attracted quasi-governmental powers to found colonies, to administer justice and issue coinage, even to wage war. Batavia, that is Jakarta, founded in 1619, became their principal Asian commercial hub. It traded with China for silks and porcelain, although the Chinese saw off forcible attempts to establish a permanent Dutch presence on their territory. Negotiation worked better with the Japanese, who agreed to the establishment of a Dutch entrepot on an artificial island off Nagasaki in 1641, Japan's only trading window on the world for 200 years, until the Americans forcibly opened their markets in the mid-19th century. The VOC even sponsored further exploration. Tasman discovered both his eponymous island and New Zealand in 1642, though no one much bothered with either for another hundred years. The VOC may therefore be fairly described as the world's first global corporation, commanding unprecedented power and wealth, the apple or alphabet of its day. And since its shares were publicly traded, Amsterdam became the world's first capital market, pioneering such financial innovations as futures contracts in commodities both familiar and new. Dutch investors even created the world's first speculative bubble when a tulip mania gripped the country and prize bulbs changed hands for sums equivalent to ten years of a craftsman's wages. Until, that is, the bottom dropped out of that particular market. If it had worked in one hemisphere, why not the other? The Dutch West India Company was duly chartered in 1621, as soon as the twelve-year truce with Spain expired. This worked less well. Dutch colonies were established in the Antilles, Suriname and North America. New Amsterdam was founded on Manhattan Island in 1624 to protect the fur trade up Hudson River. But the richest pickings turned out to be from preying on Spanish bullion ships and after the Peace of Westphalia the company focused rather on West African gold and the burgeoning transatlantic slave trade. So, this peon to the extraordinary qualities and achievements of the 17th century Dutch Republic needs also to acknowledge that much of its astonishing commercial and financial success and the civic and civilizational advances built on it was founded on often ruthless and inhumane exploitation of other peoples. Of course, a nation which had just endured what they had to achieve their independence, no doubt felt themselves to be living in a dog-eat-dog world. If they doubted it, the four Anglo-Dutch wars of the second half of the 17th century will have dispelled any illusion as the English, their Protestant allies, drove them from the seas and took over their global empire and operations. But that is to get ahead of ourselves. First, we must revert to the first half of the 16th century, dominated, of course, by the Thirty Years' War. It is not an edifying tale, but, if you can bear it, 
This is where we will begin our next episode.